All right, well, good morning, uh, brothers and sisters, young people. Um, we have this morning uh, the example of the verse by verse study that we just talked about in our interview is going to be the parable of the sower. And we're looking at it from the perspective of Luke's gospel. And we don't have time this morning to be able to go through every detail of this parable. In fact, I think if you wanted to go through every aspect of this parable, you might need an entire Bible school uh, to do that. There's so much packed into these verses. So what we want to do is just highlight as we go through some of the key differences that we find between Luke's account of this parable and Matthew and Mark's account of this parable. We know this parable very well. We, we learn it in Sunday school when we grow up. For those who grew up in the truth, um, people, you can, people know it quite well. I'm sure lots of people, even if they don't read the Bible, might have heard something about the parable of the sower. It's one of the most fundamental, basic uh, parables that we have in the scripture. And yet contained in this parable, there are lessons um, for us. There are things that are contained here that help us in, in, in bringing to our attention things that can hinder us in our growth in the truth. Um, there are things contained in here that can help us to understand why are there so many people that don't understand or want, even want to hear about the truth. Um, this, this parable deals with all these different um, aspects. Now, I said in the interview that before you get into a verse-by-verse -verse approach, you need to look at the big story first. You need to get the big picture of what's going on. Now, we know this parable well, as I said, but just to give us an idea, there is one character that stands out in this parable. He's the sower. We're going to take a look at him in a minute. And there is the seed that that sower is sowing, and we're told quite clearly in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, that the seed is the word of God. And the word of God is landing on different types of soil. And the soil represents the hearts of individuals. And depending on the condition of the heart at that time, the word may respond, the, 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 the way the word, or the way they react to the word um, will be different. And if we just look at an overview of the different types of grounds, um, I'm sure there's probably more we could say, but this is a very simple um, analysis of, of the four types of grounds. We have the wayside or the pathway. Here are people we're told that hear the word, but they don't understand. Luke says they don't believe, and there's no response. So these people never respond to the truth. They don't come into the truth. They're not baptized. They don't, they, they, they may be interested to hear just a little bit, but before they can proceed any further, there, there's just no, there's no commitment there and no, no response. The, there is the stony or rocky ground are people which hear the word. They do respond. And in fact, all the other three types of ground are people that respond to the word. They get baptized. They accept the word. But the stony or rocky ground, they, they respond. But Luke implies in his gospel, they stop believing. And there are influences that are there that cause them to fall away. And that word fall away that's used is a very definitive thing. They leave the truth. They do not stay within the ecclesia. Then we have the thorny ground. These are people that hear 
They respond, they're in the ecclesia, but they're distracted with other things. And they're unfruitful. It doesn't say that they leave the ecclesia necessarily, they're there, but they're distracted and they are unfruitful. And then we, of course, have the good ground. These are people that hear, they respond, they bring forth fruit. And that's what we want to be. We want to be the good ground. We want to be bringing forth the fruits of righteousness, the characteristics that are pleasing to our Father that manifest our Heavenly Father. That's what it's about. And if you were to actually look at these different types of ground, you would see that there are some differences with them. The good ground, for instance, is not natural. You will not find a good piece of ground in the earth um, in which you could sow your seed. It's a, it's a ground that must be prepared, first of all. Um, the thorns are, are, a, are a type of ground that is the condition of the world at this time. You will get weeds and thorns anywhere that you plant your seed unless you get rid of them. So you can see that there's effort that's involved. And we'll also see that that wayside or the pathway is also another type of ground that's man-made. It's, it again is not natural. And so there are, some, there are some interesting aspects of this parable that we want to examine. But first of all, let's look at the sower and his seed. And we wanna look at, first of all, Luke chapter eight and verse five. It says, a sower went out to sow his seed. Now, if you compare Luke's account here to Matthew and Mark, you will notice that Matthew and Mark do not say his seed. Now, that's one of those little phrases that you could just read over and, and not think about. But there, are, there is significance in what is being said there, his seed. And in looking at this, we begin to understand if the seed is the word of God, then who ultimately is the sower? We may first jump to the conclusion that the sower is Christ. But in fact, if we compare it over and look at verse 11, where it says the seed is the word of God, and the sower in verse 5 is sowing his seed, then first and foremost, the sower is God himself. God is the one who has sown his word to his people. He's given us his word. His word, which is quick and powerful. His word that's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His word that's able to cause us to, to, to go from the natural way that we think and transform our whole way of thinking. And his word, of course, which gives us that hope of eternal life. You know, it's an amazing thing when you think about that tiny little seed, that a tiny seed can, can have the, the code within it, the genetic code to be able to, to produce something so wonderful, whether that's a plant or a tree bearing fruit just in that small, tiny seed. And what a wonderful way that is for the word of God to think about it in that way. The word of God could just be words on a page, and yet they have a transformative power to them. But this seed is God's seed. It's his word. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came and sowed that word, he recognized that principle, that it wasn't his words, it was God's words. And the same with us as well. 
We go out and we sow the seed. We sow the word. But whether it was Christ or whether it's us, we're simply manifesting first and foremost the character of our Father who's entrusted us with this word. And it's his word. The lesson there is, of course, we must not treat the word of God as as something which we can just sort of pick and choose what it is that we want to, to sow. We've got to take the whole word. It's God's word. And we can't just sort of take the parts we like and say, I'm going to tell people about that and not tell them the parts that may not be so um, palatable to them. Ultimately, there might be some tact in the way that we put those things across. But in the end, when we preach the gospel and we're, we're train, teaching somebody to be baptized, they have to come to understand the whole counsel of the scriptures. Now, look at how the Apostle Paul took that principle and, and used it. So, first of all, in 1 Timothy 1 and 11, he talks about the fact that the gospel, which he was preaching, had com- been committed to his trust. He recognized that it was God's word committed to him. But he made it personal to himself. He didn't, he didn't make it so personal that he took away from it and changed it in any way. But it became his message that he was personally associated with. And so in 2 Timothy 2 and 8, he says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He now took this message and made it personal. He says, it's my gospel. So although the seed is ultimately God's, it can become our seed as well, something we're personally connected with. And of course, Paul took on the role of a sower. He says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, I've planted the word. Apollos watered. God gave the increase. And so we take these things together and we look at the key lessons that are here just in this little phrase, his seed. We learn that the the gospel message first and foremost is God's, which we've been entrusted with. Therefore, we're not at liberty to change it by adding to it or taking from it in any way. Secondly, the gospel message is something that we need to personally be identified with. And thirdly, sowing the seed is a manifestation of God and Christ. In manifesting our God, we will will sow the seed and share the seed just as he has. Now we come to the different types of ground. And as we said, this is about these types of ground are to do with the response that people give to hearing the word. And you could actually go through verses 11 uh, to 15 And you can just highlight in your Bible the word here. All these types of ground hear the word. So the parable is not concerned with those who do not hear the word. It's only about those who hear the word and the response that they give. Well, we come to the wayside and we continue in verse 5. It says, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. Now again, the fowls of the air devouring the seed is something which Matthew and Mark also point out. And it's described later on in verse 12 as those that come and take the word out of the heart. They were like the Pharisees, for instance, and the religious 
teachers in the days of Christ when he was preaching and they were there hovering around as, as Jesus was preaching the gospel and they swooped in to pick up the seed when it had been, when it had been sown so that it didn't take any root. They were there to turn the people away from Christ. But Luke adds now another detail that Matthew and Mark don't have. And it's this phrase that I've highlighted on the screen. It was trodden down. Now, there's a couple of things that that phrase implies. It was trodden down. First of all, let's just take a look. This is where we could do one of our word studies. Trodden down. It's the Greek word katapeteo, meaning to tread down. And if you look up that word, it's only found five places in the New Testament. And I've listed those references on the screen. And a few of them have um, give us some insight into how that word is used elsewhere in, in Scripture. What is this treading down? Is it just somebody who just casually walked over it? Well, it says in Matthew 5, verse 13, this is that passage where it talks about salt, the salt that's lost its savor. It's no good, but to be cast out and it's going to be trodden down, walked over. But here's a really good one. Matthew 7, verse 6, it talks about don't cast your pearls before swine because they're going to tread them down. It's the same word. They're going to walk over them. It gives a sense that, you know, the, you, you cast your pearls to the swine. Well, the pigs don't know what the value of a pearl is. They treat it as, as worthless, as meaningless. So they tread it down underfoot. They have no appreciation for what it is. There are so many, of course, in the, in the world that you, you talk to them about the scriptures and they don't want to have anything to do with it. They have no appreciation for the joy of what the gospel message can bring to our life. They have no appreciation for spiritual things. But Hebrews 10 verse 29 even adds further to this idea of trodden down. It talks about those who tread underfoot the Son of God. Now, you put those ideas together. You have the idea that to tread the seed down is someone treating that seed as worthless, failing to appreciate it, and treating it with rudeness and disrespect. That's the idea of the significance that it was trodden down, that we can get just from looking at how it's used in these other verses. Now, when we think about it, that ground is the heart of an individual, but somebody else is treading it down as it's been sown upon their heart. And, and that's true, that when people, some people, when they hear the gospel message has been preached to them, maybe they are a little bit interested. But it might be somebody that's a friend of theirs, a family member, somebody else that might be standing by, might be, that might, they might tell them, well, I'm, I'm, I've been going to a, you know, a Bible seminar, I'm, I'm looking into the Bible, and, and suddenly they say, well, that's, that's a waste of your time. They tread it down. Somebody's treading on it with rudeness and disrespect, treating it as worthless. And before the word has even begun to be able to take root, they've been turned away from the word and they, and they, and they listen to the others that have, that have tread it down and, and, and they've, been, they've been turned away. 
But treading, treading down also adds another aspect to this um, parable because it, it tells us something about the ground itself. As we said before, the, the pathway is not something that is God. God didn't create the world with a pathway. It's something that's man-made. How is a pathway formed? By people walking on the same ground over and over and over again. And as they walk, the ground becomes harder and harder and harder to the point where if a seed is sown, the ground is so compacted that there's nothing, no soil that's loose to be able to, to take root in. And the significance of that is that over the process of time, the ground, our, the ground of our heart can become compacted by different people presenting different ideas and philosophies and teachings, treading upon our heart. You know, when we're young, we have a hymn that says, the heart is fresh and tender. It's ready to receive all kinds of instruction. But then people tread on that ground and trample on it. And the world wants to do this. They want to tread on our heart to compact it and make it hard to the receiving of the word of God. And we got to be careful about that influence. So you can see that in this, in this phrase, trodden down, there's a couple of different things that come out, aside from the, the impact of the birds of the air. So there's, there's really, we could say there's some key lessons that we learn here as to why people don't accept the truth when we preach it to them. We find that many people will not respond to the gospel because their heart has been already conditioned over many years to not receive that word. Some people are going to hear the word and are going to seek another's opinion. Or somebody else is going to step in and give their opinion. And they're going to tread down that seed. They're going to eat it up like the birds and take it away from them. And the, the lesson here for us, and, and, and whether we're young people or whether we're, we're parents bringing up children, it's to really understand that the world is trying to harden our hearts to accept and believe the scriptures. It's an influence that is treading down the ground and treading down the seed. We must not let it. We need to cultivate the land. We need to make sure that our heart is well cultivated, not being tread, trodden down so that the word can take root and grow. Well, we come now to the next verse, verse six of Luke eight. Some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Now, this is the aspect of the parable, with the verse of the parable, which is the most unique to Luke's gospel. He makes a number of changes compared to Matthew and Mark's account. Now, I don't know if you look at that picture of the, uh, on the screen there of the rocky ground, if that's the kind of rock that you had in mind uh, when you think about the seed falling on rocky ground. You might have thought of some stones, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but this is the word that Luke uses for rocky ground. It looks more like this than, than stones in the ground. So just highlighting some of the differences that Luke makes, he uses the word Petra for the rock, rather than Matthew Mark using Petro. We'll look at the difference in a moment. And Luke is really going to focus on the internal rather than the external influences. He's really going to get to the heart of what the problem is. So while Matthew and Mark are going to focus on the fact that there's no soil 
for the for the seed to take root in. Luke will go a step further and say, well, what, what, what's so significant about there being no soil? He will say because that means that they can't get moisture. They can't get the water, which is another symbol for the word. These people are not getting the right moisture from the word. The word is not being able to come into them and they're not able to understand it correctly and appreciate the principles from that word. Luke, again, is not going to mention the sun. The sun represents trials and afflictions, which are absolutely necessary for our development and growth, just as the sun is absolutely necessary for the growth of a, of a tree or a plant to bring forth fruit. So he's not going to mention the sun. And rather than talking about trials and afflictions, he's going to talk about a time of temptation in verse 13. Because trials and afflictions will naturally lead to a time of temptation. How do we deal with those trials and, and afflictions? We may be tempted to deal with them in a way that is, that is not right. So he talks about times of temptation. It's an internal thing. It's something we have control over, how we deal with it. Trials and afflictions we don't have control over. And Luke goes a step further, and rather rather than just saying they're offended, like Matthew and Mark say, Luke says implies in verse thirteen, which for a while believe, and in times of temptation they fall away. So he implies that they stop believing and fall away. Now there's a really good cross reference. I want you just to come over to Hebrews chapter three. And this is a passage which will help us to understand what is going on with these individuals on the rocky or stony ground. Why don't they receive the truth or why, why have they received it and then fall away? Now, what's interesting about this is look at the number of connections to the sower. This is what you want to find, a passage that has a lot of the same words. Okay, so look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. This is talking about Israel in the wilderness. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, if your heart is a rock, it's hard. You have a hard heart and it's a time of temptation. Luke says that this is a time of temptation. Okay. In verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years, wherefore was I grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. It's talking about the heart of the individual. So I swear my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So there's the idea of the heart and of not believing in departing from the living God. That word departing there in verse 12 is the same word, fall away. But, verse 13, what do we need to do? Exhort one another daily. Get the word in. Now, what was going on here? This was Israel in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Israel had been impressed initially with the mighty signs that God had given them when, when, when he, they had brought them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, and there was that great time of rejoicing in Exodus 15. And only days later, they were grumbling. They were complaining. It says they were putting God to the test. 
they stopped believing that God could provide for them in the wilderness. Even though they had seen all these signs, it even says that they longed to go back to Egypt. So they lost their perspective. They forgot about what Egypt was really like. Like they failed to appreciate what it was that God had given them. The hope that was set before them of entering into this land of promise, this land of milk and honey. There's a perfect example, Israel in the wilderness, of the rocky ground, which for a while believed and were joyful. And then times of temptation came. They stopped believing. They fell away. Now to expand a little bit further on this idea, I said that Luke changes the word. He uses Petra rather than Petrol. Now this is what Vines has to say about this word. Petra, which Luke uses, denotes a mass of rock as distinct from Petros, which is a detached stone or boulder or a stone that might be thrown or easily moved. So Matthew and Mark use these little stones that you can easily move out of the way. Luke uses the word, the same word that he uses in Luke 6, verse 48, for the wise man, his house was built upon this massive rock, this Petra. That's the kind of rock that is, that is now in, the, in these people's heart. Now, that's a very weird thing to think about. What do, what's the meaning of this? Well, look at how else this word is used. In Romans 9, verse 33, it says, for those who don't believe, Christ becomes a rock of offense. There's that word rock, Petra. 1 Peter 2, 8, very similar. For those who, are who stumble and are disobedient to the word, Christ is a rock of offense. So, there's an idea here that th this rock is used elsewhere to represent Christ, the fundamentals of the gospel. And while it is a good thing in another parable, it's become a rock of offense in this parable. And I'd suggest to you that there is something going on with these individuals that is that would, that would indicate that they, there's something about the truth, something about the, 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 the first principles of the truth that they failed to be able to fully appreciate and comprehend. For Israel in the wilderness, they failed to appreciate what it was that God had truly offered them, what Egypt was really like, what the promised land was really like. There's another example. Here's the apostles in Matthew 16, 14. When he appeared unto the eleven after the resurrection, as they sat at meat, Jesus upbraided them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Here was the apostles, which were falling away after the resurrection. They were so discouraged. Why? Because they had failed to appreciate what the scriptures had said, that Jesus needed to rise again. And so they had fallen into this unbelief and hardness of heart. It's not that this can be, can't be overcome. Jesus upbraided them. But we need to get our perspective right and understand the scriptures. Get the word in. Else if we fail to appreciate these things, we can fall away. Now, the thorny ground. In the thorny ground, we're, we're told that... Um, some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. It says in verse 7, and the interpretation is given, verse 14, 
that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard, they go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Now, this is probably the most challenging of all the grounds to us because these are the distractions in life. These are the, the, the cares of this life, the riches that we might be pursuing after. There's lots of riches and wealth and materialistic things that can distract us in our discipleship and the pleasures of this life. Lots of pleasures. This is what the world is trying to entice us with and distract us with. These are the things that are the most challenging to us. Now, Luke doesn't give as many descriptions of these things as, as Matthew and Mark do, but Luke does tell us a couple of things. I've underlined on the screen the things that are unique to Luke's gospel. I just want to pick up on a couple of them. He says the thorns sprang up with the good seed and choked it. Now, this, there's some implication here. And that is that, you know, you might think of the seed falling in the midst of these big thorns that are already up. The implication in Luke's gospel, and, and it's there also in the other ones, but more so here, is that these thorns are actually springing up out of the ground with the good seed, with the seed of the word springing up. They're springing up with it. They're alongside it. They're growing up together. They're a companion to that word and then become a hindrance to it later on. And so these are things that can be, we're, we're trying to split our time with these things, straight, split our energy. But they, you know, a weed in the garden can appear innocent enough when it first begins to, to sprout out of, out of the ground. But unless we deal with it early, unless we, we pull it up, what can happen is it can get bigger and bigger and croach on the, on the growth of the good seed. And eventually it gets to a point where if you try to pull up that weed, you're going to actually damage the good seed as well. And that's the fact with, with, these, with, these, uh, with these thorns, that they need to be dealt with early when, when they're little. If they get too big, and we become too engrossed in these things, it can be more and more and more difficult to deal with them. And notice also what Luke says here at the very end. He says, these are individuals which don't bring forth fruit to perfection. Now, the implication is there that these individuals do bring forth or show the signs of bringing forth fruit. They appear to be fruitful, but they don't bring that fruit forth to perfection. There's a little bit of idea of self-deception in this, that we can actually deceive ourselves to think that we're being fruitful, but the fruit is not actually being brought forth to perfection. And so Luke highlights here in this real word to perfection, the subtlety of these thorns. So we have just a few minutes left, and we, we are going pretty quick here, but... Um, we're just going to go to the good ground. So the good ground, as it comes up in verse 8, it says, Other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And then the interpretation is given in verse 15, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, 
and bring forth fruit with patience. This is the ground that Luke actually focuses the most on. This is the ground that Luke gives more description to than any of the other gospel accounts. Now you'll notice a few changes that are here. In the interpretation of this parable, in verse 15, I've highlighted a few. The good ground are they which in an honest and good heart. Now which one of us has an honest and good heart naturally? The scriptures tell us otherwise. They tell us naturally we have a heart bent on evil. That was in our devotion last night. We have a heart that's bent on evil. So this is, this is just like the, the good ground is not a, a type of ground that you naturally go out and just find already prepared. It's something that needs to be cultivated. It needs to be prepared. This is telling us that our hearts need to be prepared to receive the word of God. We have to gather out the stones. We have to make it so that it's, that it's really good soil, ready to, to bear the fruits of righteousness. The honest and good heart means there's a sincerity about us. Now we could do, if we had more time, we would do a word study on each of those ideas. What's the difference between honest and good and explore that idea a little bit further? But we, we don't have time, so we're not going to do that this morning. These are individuals which keep the word, it says. Now that's a theme. If you wanted to study it through, that's a whole thematic study, keeping the word that begins in Genesis with the cherubim, keeping the way to the tree of life and goes right the way through scripture, right to Revelation chapter 16, where it talks about keeping our garments. These are individuals who keep the truth. They guard the truth. They protect the truth. They cherish the truth. They walk in the truth. So that's a whole study you could do on, on its own. They bring forth fruit with patience. There's patience. This characteristic is brought out by Luke because we need to have patience to endure unto the end, to keep the truth amidst the different trials and afflictions that will come upon us so we don't give up. We need to have patience. Again, we could do a further study. That would be another thematic study that we could go into of patience. But finally, I just want to go back to this idea of the hundredfold. Do you notice that Luke doesn't mention what Matthew and Mark do about some bring forth 30 and some 60 and some 100fold? Luke just says 100fold. Now, I got questioning when I was looking at this, why? Why does Luke only mention the hundredfold? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, there's a really good cross-reference in, in Genesis chapter 26 that brings up the idea of hundredfold. And in Genesis 26, this is where Isaac, he was about to follow in the footsteps of Abraham in a time of famine and go down to Egypt. We're told in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. And God appeared to him in verse 2 and says, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land, the land that I've promised you. And he reiterates in verse 3 and 4 the promises. And that's what Isaac does. He stays in the land. He maintains his faith amidst this trial of famine. He doesn't give up, but he believes God. He believes God will look after him, and, and he does something absolutely ironic. 
It says in verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land. At time of famine, he sowed his seed. He sowed his seed, and look what it says. He received in the same year a hundredfold, and Yahweh blessed him. There's a great cross-reference. What is it telling us? If we want to be on the good ground, we need to continue to trust in God, even in times of hardship. Don't give up. Live consistent with the promises. For Isaac, it was stay in the land. Focus on the fact that God will look after you. Have a vision of the kingdom to come, of the promises. That's exactly what Isaac did. He was blessed of God. There's a, there's a reference there to the hundredfold. And so, brothers and sisters, our goal is to be fruitful, to bring forth the fruits of righteousness, to endure unto the end, and cultivate our hearts that we might have good ground, good soil, in which we might bring forth those fruits. Thank you.